Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast for Hope City Church. We pray the word of God leaves you encouraged and hopeful today. All right. Well, this is our fourth week in the letter of Jude. So we've been going through the letter of Jude, this tiny but mighty letter of Jude. And so let me give a real quick recap, and then we'll uh, dive in where we're at. The last couple weeks, uh, the first week of our series, we just kind of gave a, a kind of high-arching overview. We just kind of looked at the whole letter, just the general idea and theme of the letter, kind of looked at the outline that we were going to be tackling. And in the last two weeks, uh, two weeks ago, we tackled verse 1. Last week, we tackled verse two. (laughs) And so we saw in those verses uh, that the author identifies himself as Jude, uh, which is short for Judas, uh, the brother of Jesus. Actually, he introduces himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And from all of that, we figured out and realized that this is Jude, the brother of Jesus. Uh, And yet his primary identification to us was as a servant of Jesus Christ. Uh, And then he tells us who he's writing to. In verse 2, he says, to those who are, I'm sorry, in verse 1 still, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So we looked at those three just absolutely loaded words, called, beloved, and kept. And, uh, And so that really clues us in that he's writing to Christians. This letter is for believers. It's for Christians. Um, This letter will have little meaning or interest to you unless you are a born-again Christian who is abiding in Christ. Uh, And then last week what we looked at is this beautiful benediction, this blessing that he speaks over them right at the beginning of the letter, found there in verse 2. He says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And it's just this amazing blessing that he speaks over them at the very beginning of his letter. Mercy, peace and love. He, he prays for that. He speaks that blessing over them, over us, because we need those things. We need mercy. We need peace. And we need love. And uh, we have them all in Christ Jesus. And Jude prays that they would be multiplied to us. So if you're in need of those things, man, grab a hold of verse 2. If you're in need of mercy, I pray that mercy would be multiplied to you. If you're in need of peace, I pray that peace would be multiplied to you. If you're in need of the love of God, I pray that love would be multiplied to you. And so that's a pretty powerful start to Jude's letter. That's how he starts things off. That's how he kicks this. It's only 25 verses, but the first two are power-packed. And now we're going to get into verses 3 and 4. And, and I believe in doing so, we're, Jude is now going to kind of get to the purpose, his purpose in writing this letter. So let's read these two verses. We'll pray, and then we'll kind of start to take a look at it. Quickly, because of time's hit. Jude, verses 3 and 4, he says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Father God, I just pray that you would anoint this time, that you would speak to us through your word. 
Give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you want to show us, what you want to say to us this morning. And help us to tune out all other distractions, God, but just to, to key in on your voice this morning through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. Now, this is not actually in my notes, but as I was reading this, I noticed again, okay, verse 1, okay, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, beloved, calls them beloved or the beloved, okay, in God the Father. That is, all children of God are the beloved of God, the beloved in God the Father. Then in verse 2, he prays that love would be multiplied to them. And then in verse 3, even when he gets to the point now of why he's writing, he starts by saying, beloved. First three verses, three times, we are called beloved or loved by God the Father. So he is speaking to to us as Christians, as children of God, if you are in Christ, he three times in the first three verses says, beloved, those who are loved dearly, cherished, valued, prized by God the Father. And then he gets to his purpose in writing a letter. But here's what I want you to notice. I want you to actually see something. Jude's purpose in writing this letter is not really his purpose at all. He actually wanted to write something else, he tells us. But he was compelled to write this. Okay? Look at verse 3 again. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. That's what he wanted to write about. He wanted to write just a general letter about our common salvation, encouraging them probably in the faith. Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Found it necessary. If you are following, just highlight those words, underline them, circle them, do whatever you're going to do. Found it necessary. I found, I wanted to write to you about one thing, but I found it necessary to write to you about this. The language in the English doesn't really carry the same intensity as the Greek does. So this is originally written in Greek, okay? The Greek indicates a divine compulsion. The word in the Greek actually means to compress or to put pressure on. It speaks of necessity, constraint, compulsion, strong force. So what am I getting at? Jude is actually saying that he wanted to write something else, but was compressed, was pressured, constrained, moved upon with strong force, and divinely compelled to write what he wrote here. And we know, I think I included this in your notes, but we know from 2 Peter chapter 1, Verses 20 and 21, it says, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So if we put that together with what Jude is saying here, we understand that it, what happened was Jude wanted to write one thing, and, and the Holy Spirit moved upon him and compressed him, compelled him to write this letter. For what purpose? To urge believers to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That's what he says. I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, but I found it necessary. I was compressed. I was compelled to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In verses 3 and 4, I want us to see three things. and We're going to try to get to them pretty quickly. Three things. Number one. There is a faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. If you have your notes, those are the fill in the blanks there. There is a faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. Did you see that in verse 3? 
I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for what? The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So let's break this down. Circle the words the faith. The faith. Okay? John Piper says, sometimes the word faith is used for the feeling of trust in Christ. Other times, as here, it is used for the truths that we believe about the one we trust. Do you see the difference? He didn't say, I, I, I felt compressed to write to you, appealing to you to contend for your faith. He says, to contend for the faith. He doesn't say, contend for the faith that you have in your heart. Although that's not bad. He's going to get to that later. He says, build yourself up in the faith. He's going to say later in the letter. He says, I, he didn't say, I'm writing to, to urge you to contend for the personal feeling of faith that you have in your heart for Jesus. He says, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so here, when we're talking about the faith, we're not talking about a personal feeling of faith that you have in Jesus. We're talking about the faith. That is the body of truth or standard of teaching, doctrine, set of beliefs about God and man and sin and salvation. The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so understand that. He's not saying here, I, I felt urged by the Holy Spirit to tell you to contend for your personal faith in Jesus, although that's good. He's saying, I, I felt compelled to urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered, the faith, the Christian faith. Now underline the word delivered in that verse. It says, the faith was delivered. So this body of truth was not decided by us or determined by us, but delivered to us. Do you catch that? This is really important. It seems like maybe I'm splitting hairs, but this is vital. It's vital that we understand that the faith that we have is not something that we just get to decide or determine or discover for ourselves and just go, oh, I just decide or determine that this is truth or that this is my personal little version of faith. He doesn't say your faith. He says the faith. <clears throat> It's not decided or determined by us. It's delivered to us. It's been delivered to us. William Barclay in his um, commentary says, says this. The facts of the Christian faith are not something which we have discovered for ourselves. In the truest sense of the word, they are tradition. Something which has been handed down from generation to generation until it has come to us. They go back in an unbroken chain to Jesus Christ himself. Now, tradition has gotten a bad rap in recent years. We throw around the word tradition like it's, like it's bad. Like it was, oh, it, oh, it's just tradition. And tradition is bad if it contradicts the word of God. Tradition is beautiful and wonderful and godly so long as it affirms the truth of God's word. And so, having received from tradition, by the handing down from generation to generation, the faith that started with Christ and his disciples that was passed down to us the truth of the cross and, and the resurrection. That body of truth was handed down to us. So we don't get to conceive the faith, we just get to receive the faith. Does that make sense? We don't get to just make it up in our heads, we just get to receive what was handed to us. And that body of truth is now handed down to us in sacred scripture. Now circle the words, once for all. Once for all. We just need to drive this point home because it's huge. This is what Jude is getting at. And he's going to tell us why he's going to do this in verse 4. <clears throat> but he's, he's really trying to drive this home. The faith, Scripture says, was once for all 
delivered to the saints. Not once upon a time. Uh, once upon a time, it was delivered to the saints, but now it no longer applies. It doesn't say once upon a time delivered to the saints. The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Do you see the difference? Because it's huge. It's the difference between truth and error. It's the difference between true teaching and false teaching. The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It means it's delivered once, sufficient for all, for all of us, for all time. And that means that there's an unchangeable core or nucleus of truth that is not amendable. We don't get to amend it. It's not open for modification, revision, or alteration. Listen, I get tired of this because, like, it's not our job to be clever and try to discover new doctrines or fresh variations of the gospel. Or to repaint Jesus until he seems more relevant and palatable to our modern culture. It's not our job to revise or update or modernize the faith. It is our job to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That's what Jude says here. So since he says that, let's circle the words to the saints. To the saints. This is important because it wasn't just delivered to any one individual or not. And yes, we all discover it individually. But the core truths of the faith are not something that are the possession of any one individual as if any one individual can just alter or change them. But they, but they were given to the church, to the saints. So it's not your truth. It's the truth. It's not just, oh, that's your faith. This is my faith. You know, your little version of Jesus and my little version of Jesus. There is the faith. That's what he's getting at. It was delivered to the saints, to the church. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 says that the church is the pillar and ground of truth. Part of what that means is that the, it's the church's job, the body of Christ, the family of God's job to preserve and pass down the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. You and I are in the faith today because saints of previous generations were faithful to do their job. So, generations before us experienced heresy and false teaching and all kinds of things that tried to infiltrate the church. And yet, the core of the church, the family of God, preserved and contended for the faith and faithfully passed on to us the truth, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Our job is no different. So, to that first point, there is a faith once for all delivered to the saints, not a faith that you personally decide, determine, or, or pick. You know, the most common spiritual idea today is this, like, blender spirituality, right? It's like, I like a little bit of Buddhism, a little bit of Jesus, not the offensive parts. I like a little bit of Islam. I like a little bit of this, a little bit of that, modern philosophy. I like, I like some Eastern stuff. I just kind of put it all in a blender, leaving out all the parts that challenge me or confront me or that I just don't like or that are not palatable to my modern sensibilities. I just put all the stuff I like in a blender. I blend it up and I go, that's my faith. You have your faith, but this is my faith. That's the most common spiritual idea that is prevalent today, and it's a false faith. So there is a faith once for all, once for all, delivered to the saints. Which brings us to our second point. The faith is repeatedly threatened from within the church. 
the faith is repeatedly threatened from within the church. So there is a faith once for all delivered to the saints, and the faith is repeatedly threatened from within the church. Look now to verse 4. See, he tells them to contend for the faith, but then he has to tell us why. He says, here's why. Verse 4, for because certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So let's break this verse down today. It says certain people, who are they? Well, unfortunately, Jude never tells us directly who they are. Fortunately or, or unfortunately, I believe it's the, the Holy Spirit who kind of left that secret. And probably that's a good thing because if we knew exactly, we'd say, oh, that doesn't apply to us. It applied to them in their circumstance. Jude never tells us directly who they are, but from the letter, we can learn a couple of things about what they were teaching, and we'll get to that in a moment. But it says this. It says, they crept in unnoticed. Do you see those words? Verse 4, for certain people have done what? Crept in unnoticed. What does the word in mean? Crept in where? In the church. Crept in among you, among us, at the table with you. It's like Judas sat at the table with Jesus. In, among, serving, ministering alongside of. Looks just like everyone else. He says they crept in, so they're in among the church. And he says they crept in unnoticed. That means it's not immediately obvious or apparent who they are. He says they crept in unnoticed. We didn't notice them when they crept in. We didn't notice that they were, that they were not of us. They look like they're of us. They act and talk like they're of us, but they crept in unnoticed is what Jude says. So they're in among us, and it's not immediately obvious who they are. Uh, in Matthew chapter 13, if you're taking notes, jot these down. Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30. Matthew 13, 24 through 30. And Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. In Matthew 13... There's, we're told a parable of the wheat and the weeds. It says somebody planted a wheat field and then an enemy comes and overnight plants weeds among the wheat. So the wheat is good, it's fruitful, it's beneficial. Weeds are good for what? Nothing. It's just like you, get, you want to pluck them, right? But it says the weeds grow among the wheat and it looks like the wheat. And if you ever put a picture side by side of wheat and the weeds that grow, the tares that grow among them, it's almost hard to distinguish and so the parable that, that is being told there in Matthew 13 is that there is wheat, there's fruitful people in the kingdom of God, and among them, looking just like them, are weeds. And the parable says, don't, don't try to discern all that now, right? Don't try to just chop out the weeds right now, because you might chop out some of the good wheat. You might think you're going after a heretic or something, and you got somebody that's actually in faith, right? It says, at the end, at the end of the age... There will be a, a reckoning. It says the, the harvester will come and he will separate the wheat from the weeds. And the weeds will be burned up and the wheat will be profitable. Matthew 7 talks about false prophets, false teachers who sneak into the church. He says they're in sheep's clothing, but, in, but internally they're ravenous wolves. They look just like sheep, but they're wolves in sheep's clothing. So they look just like the sheep but they're actually ravenous wolves who are devouring the sheep. Those are false prophets, false teachers, people that speak false things about God. Notice it doesn't say they speak against God. They speak false things about God. 
It wouldn't be convincing if somebody popped in the church and said, hey, I hate God and Jesus and everything. Hey, I'm one of you. You go, oh, hang on a second. That's pretty obvious. You don't, you don't look like the rest of the wheat. You don't look like the rest of the sheep. No, no, no. Wheat and weeds look just like each other, speaking the same, using the same words, saying the same stuff. False prophets are not people who speak against God. They are people who speak wrong things about God. I read an article this week, just coincidentally, this was the teaching, and I read an article this week that just happened to be released this week from a guy named Dan Doriani. It was a great article, and he said a lot of things, but one of the things that he said was, for centuries, liberal theologians have believed it their task to make Christianity palatable to modern man. It's not new to this generation. The way it expresses itself may be fresh, but it's not a new thing. Their goal is to rescue Christianity by removing those elements that are most offensive to the present culture. And every age has done that. So whatever most offends this culture, well, let's save Christianity by, by revising or, or removing that part or painting Jesus in a different way or or kind of ignoring those verses, or downplaying them, or describing them, you know, explaining them away, so that they're no longer offensive to our present culture. And the reality is that these people do more damage to the faith than those who openly reject Jesus. And their attempt to save Christianity, they actually undermine or destroy it, because their first allegiance is to culture and not to God and his word. John Piper said this, Bloody Mary was a professing Christian, not a barbarian. The worst enemies of Christian doctrine are professing Christians who do not hold to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So it was in Jesus' day, so it was for the early church, so it has been throughout church history, and so it is today. There are enemies of the faith within the church. Not everyone with a Bible in their hand, quoting verses, is speaking truth. If you haven't already, put it again at the top of your notes, Acts 17.11. Never take anything that I say as, as, as just, oh, he said it, it must be true. Acts 17.11 talks about the Brians and says that they received the things that were preached to them and then they diligently searched the scriptures to see if they were true. So yes, listen to teaching, receive it gladly, but then do like they did in Acts 17.11 and diligently search the scriptures to see if what you're being taught is truth. So there are enemies of faith within the church, always have been, always will be. And then it has this kind of bothersome in a way, not bothersome, but interesting little phrase. Certain people have crept in unnoticed who, underline this, long ago were designated for this condemnation. Long ago they were designated for this condemnation. Well, that, that could mean a couple things. And we could get deep into some kind of uh, Calvinist versus Arminianist theology here. It could mean that you know, A, long ago, God designated certain people who were bound for condemnation to kind of spread some of this so that he could show us whatever, okay? Uh, the more like, now wherever you stand on that, cool, we'll have that conversation later, but I actually don't think, whether you agree or disagree with that, I don't think that's the actual application here. I could be wrong, but I don't think that's the actual application here. I think here, 
what it means is kind of option B, that long ago it was designated that false teachers would experience condemnation and the judgment of God. He's saying long ago false teachers were marked out for condemnation. That is everyone who engages in, in deceiving and devouring the sheep as a wolf among them and who, and who does damage to the church, brings in what, what scripture would call elsewhere destructive heresies, destructive teachings. Anyone who claims to be, the Bible says teachers, I never step up here. I'm not perfect, but I never step up here without feeling the weight of responsibility of teaching the word of God. Scripture says there will be a stricter judgment for teachers of God's word. And I think for the very reason that because so many people listen and are led one way or another by Bible teachers, okay, we should all be self-feeders. We should all be in the scriptures enough to recognize false teaching when we hear it. But, but it's really easy to hear teaching that just sounds good. And because they quoted a Bible verse, oh, yeah, that sounds about right. Without knowing the context or whatever ourselves. And so people who are teaching false things about God, it says there's a stricter judgment for them. And I think those who, who knowingly do it or do it in a, in a way that is intentionally deceitful, says they're long ago marked out for condemnation. You, you can't creep in among the family of God, the children of God, and bring things that destroy them, destructive heresies, and not expect to experience the judgment of God. So Jude, it's, it's heavy. It is meant to be heavy. This is a heavy, intense book. But, but Jude's like, I, I'm, I'm, I felt like the Holy Spirit's compressed me to urge you to contend for the faith because people creep in unnoticed who bring destructive teachings, who bring destructive things, who actually, who actually teach things that are not true about God. So whichever case it is, whichever, whatever long ago designated for condemnation means, what we can know for sure about that, that passage, that means that God is not shocked. Long ago, they're designated for condemnation. God sees the end from the beginning. God's not blown away by, oh, there's destructive teaching in the church. He knows it. He called it. He says, you don't be surprised by it. I'm telling you right now, don't be surprised. Everything ultimately works according to to the divine foreknowledge of God. And the judgment for false teachers is certain unless there is genuine repentance. Now, what was their specific error? And I'm gonna wrap quickly, okay? What was their specific error? Well, look at verse four. It tells us, gives us two things, A and B, okay? A, it says, they're ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. So they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. This was the specific error that they had. Now, this can take many forms. Uh, William Barclay writes this. <clears throat> he says, these people were undoubtedly tinged with the belief that since the grace of God was wide enough to cover any sin, they could sin as they liked. That the more they sin, the greater the grace. So, so why ever worry about sin? Grace was being perverted into a justification for sin. Listen, God is full of grace, so like whatever. Stop talking about sin. Sin's not a big deal. God is a God of grace. Have you ever heard that or some variation of that? Like, ah, oh, man, I know he's talking about sin. He makes such a big deal about sin, man. What a buzzkill. What a hellfire and brimstone preacher. What a... God's full of grace. Yes, God is absolutely full of grace. Why do we need grace? Because of sin. 
So if we downplay grace, we minimize, I'm sorry, if we downplay sin, we minimize the grace of God. We, we fail to understand the grace of God and why we need the grace of God. Listen to me, please. Whenever people point to the grace of God to justify sin, you can be certain that they are twisting the truth and perverting the grace of God. In any form that it takes, anytime somebody points to God's grace to justify any sin, anything the Bible, God's word clearly identifies as a sin and someone goes, well, yeah, but no, because God is the God of grace. You can be certain that they're twisting the truth and what, what this says is perverting, twisting the grace of God into sensuality, justifying sin and sensuality of all kinds by pointing to the grace of God. Well, God's a God of grace. So he doesn't care about that. Or that's no longer sin. Or God's not, maybe it is, but God's not worried about it. Stop making a big deal about it. Just talk about grace. Titus, write this down, because this is super important. And I want you to check me out on this one. Don't just take my word for it. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Tells us that grace actually teaches us to deny ungodliness. That grace, if we actually understand it and walk in it and apply it, when I understand the grace of God that covers all of my sin, I'm not encouraged to sin more. I feel like, God, you're so, when I understand the weight of my sin, that I am I'm sinful and broken and total depravity before God, and that he has grace that covers all of my sin and forgives all of my sin, I don't go, woohoo, let's go sin some more. I go, God, thank you. Thank you. Help me, empower me to not sin anymore or, or to overcome these areas of sin in my life. And grace is a thing that actually teaches you to do that and empowers you to do that. So if you're walking in sin and going, grace, 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 you've misunderstood grace. If as you stumble in sin, as we all do and will, you go, Lord, I recognize that that is a sin. Please forgive me and thank you for forgiveness and thank you for your, your grace. Now empower me to overcome in that area. That's grace. That's grace. So it says, A, they pervert the grace of God into sensuality, and B, they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. That's right there in verse 4 also. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. It's pretty clear from the context that these people weren't openly and outright denying Jesus Christ, like I reject Jesus. But he says that they were denying our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. These people weren't claiming to be atheists. He says, because they, they were talking about the grace of God and they were perverting the grace of God into something else. So what we need to understand from this is that there's more than one way in which people can deny Jesus Christ. They can openly and outright deny him and reject him. Like, I don't believe in him. I don't think he exists. Some people deny him in times of persecution. I believe in him, I believe, but now it's hard to believe in him. There's pressure, so I, I, I deny him fall away. Some people deny him for the sake of convenience. Some deny him by their lives and conduct. Their theology is fantastic 
They can preach all the right stuff. They check all the right boxes on what they believe, and yet they live completely otherwise. It's what we call a practical atheist. You say you believe these things, but you completely live contradictory to that. So you actually deny him by your lives and conduct. Or you can deny him by developing false ideas about him. So you don't like him as he's revealed himself, so you amend him, you revise him, you, you craft a Jesus of your liking, and then you worship that Jesus. And so you and I are both saying, oh, I love Jesus, but what you're worshiping is a false Jesus. Living and teaching as if he's not the master and his word is not the final authority on any given issue. So I believe in Jesus, but I, I, know what he's, I know what it says about that. I know what it says about this. I know, but no, that's not true anymore. You've just denied the lordship of Jesus. If he's Lord, he gets to say what's right, what's wrong, which way to go, what's sin, what's not sin. So you may say, I love Jesus, I'm a Christian. Jesus is more like this. It's a false idea about Jesus. And what that is is a denial of his lordship because he says, no, I'm like this, and this is a sin, and that's good, and that's wrong, and that's right, and that's beautiful, and that's worth celebrating, and this is to avoid. If he's Lord, what he says goes. Right? If he's not Lord, I get to develop my own little thoughts and disagree with him wherever I want to. Then I'm Lord. And that's why he says these people who came in and pervert the grace of God and twist things are actually denying the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what we have here. And that's why it's so subversive and dangerous. Because it's false teaching which pretends to be Christian while denying important truths of the faith. So, Number one, there is a faith once for all delivered to the saints. Number two, the faith is repeatedly threatened from within the church. And number three, then the application is this. We must contend for the faith. So there is a faith once for all delivered to the saints. That faith is repeatedly threatened from within the church. And so Jude's admonition in verse three is, therefore then, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The word contend is a powerful word. We're almost done. I know we're over, okay? The word contend is a powerful word. It means struggle, contest, competition. It means to compete, to fight for the faith. Strong's concordance says it's to struggle with skill and commitment in opposing whatever is not of the faith. To struggle, to, to, to contend, to compete, to fight for and to fight against. To fight for the faith and to fight against false teaching. Against everything that's not of the faith. We are called to contend with and oppose and fight against false ideas about God. So I, I, I can't, I know I've said this in several weeks, I know this is a theme for me because I just see it so much in the world that I think it's just, it's a burden for me. This idea that doctrine doesn't matter is bogus. You can't find that in scripture. Repeatedly in scripture, it's contend for the faith. Paul would tell Timothy, watch yourself closely in your doctrine for in doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. 
theology and doctrine and the faith and the body of truth that we believe and hold to and teach about God matters. It's the whole point of this letter. And it's an interesting thing. Now, this is hard, but it's pretty clear from this that this is everyone's job. This is not just for pastors and scholars and theologians. Now, not everybody's going to do it at the same level or to the same degree or with the same effectiveness or have the same level of gift at doing so. We're not all called to be kind of high-end debaters of whatever. Okay, that's, that's not what it's saying. But that we are called to stand for and uphold the truth, the faith that was once for all delivered to us. We are actually to have to contend with it. The world preaches to you all the time. We go, I'm tired of Christians preaching. Well, I'm tired of the world. The world preaches all the time. You can't drive down the freeway without billboards preaching at you all the time. You can't turn on your TV without commercials preaching to you false ideas all the time. The world is constantly preaching false gospels to us all the time. And scripture says we are to contend for the faith, the truth of God's word against the false teaching. We don't just let it go unchecked and unabated. Just, oh, okay, I'm just going to sit back as a Christian and be silent because love stays silent. Oh, I'm just, I just rather love people than worry about doctrine. No, if you love people, worry about doctrine. If you care about people and destructive heresies and people being led off into error and lies and things that could harm their eternal souls, then you care about eternal truth. You have to. If you love people, you have to care about doctrine. You have to care about truth. You have to care about the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And that's what Jude is getting at. He's not writing. He didn't say to to the pastors and teachers and theologians and leaders and scholars in whatever place. He says, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, I'm urging you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This faith was delivered to the saints and it's the job of the saints to contend for it. There are some things worth fighting for and the truth of God's word is one of them. There are some things worth losing face for and losing friends for and losing status for. The truth, the eternal truth of God's word is one of them. That doesn't mean we become jerks. It's been said that we have to contend without being contentious and disagree without being disagreeable. But by all means, we must contend. Who is going to raise their voice against all the false gospels being preached 24-7? The church should. The church should. In love. We must embrace the truth of God's word, live the truth of God's word, speak the truth of God's word, and lovingly but clearly and firmly oppose all teaching that contradicts the truth of God's word. And it is a sobering responsibility for people in every generation, including ours. The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints was delivered to us and must be faithfully delivered to our children and to our grandchildren. That's our job. For that to happen, we must contend for the faith to make sure that what is being handed down is the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints.
Amen. Father, we just thank you for your word. It's challenging but good for us to hear that we need to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Lord, help us to not be intimidated or silenced or scared into passivity by the loud voice of false gospels and people who would shame us for speaking the truth of your word. God, I pray that you would give us a supernatural boldness to speak the truth, to contend for the faith, God. And I pray that you would empower us to do it with love and grace dripping off of every word. Genuine love in our heart for every person we are speaking with. With a desire to see them come to know you as Lord and Savior. God, I pray for those who are introducing and, and spreading false ideas about you. Even those who would claim to be Christians but are spreading false gospels and false teachings, my prayer, God, I know that you love them. Uh, my prayer is that we would grow in absolute love for them and that they would be convicted in love by your Holy Spirit and that they would repent and return to you, return to the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. I pray these things in Jesus' name.